Welcome to Space Press, the sci-fi movie podcast for bad bitch feminists. I'm Kate, and with me is the only woman I'd want to go through hell and back again, even if hell was the Viet Cong. Mary Johnson, what up? Hello. Is this because in the last hour we have severed my internet? I figured out how to make how to send like like um, Wi-Fi hotspots to my computer, but not my iPad. It's just been like a rolling shitstorm of technical issues. Oh, MJ, uh, I'm sitting in a closet on the floor uh, <laughs> in uh, Dallas with a power cord uh, draping its way from the bathroom. So uh, I feel you. I'm it's there. A, this is a very professional podcast. <laughs> It's deeply professional. It, it, it's professional in the way that we keep doing it. You know, setbacks come and we say, hell no, we won't go. Right? It's professional in the in the where there's a will, there's a way sort of way. <laughs> it's Indeed. Utterly crazy. Utterly crazy. Oh, man. So we're now in the depths of summer. It's quite hot outside. I want... Quite hot. A, I want a popsicle basically all the time. Um... And uh, the beach is is the destination of choice. So knowing that we were going to be recording in this heat, I propose to Kate that we have a couple of episodes that deviate from our regularly scheduled sci-fi programming and indulge perhaps a little in one of my favorite genres, big animal movies. Du, 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 du. I don't know. Yeah, I don't I'm know. Into it. I don't know what it is about summer that just screams to me um, throwing humankind into an existential tailspin over exactly where we stand on the food chain. But it does. <laughs> Girl, I literally like you just word for word right off my notes. And I know you didn't <laughs> because you haven't seen them, but like you did. Anyway, yeah, I'm stoked on it. I think it's great. Big animal movies in summer. It's not just you. It's every recording studio knows for some reason. That's when we crave it. Um, I mean, maybe it's yeah. just maybe it's just a function of like practicality. If you're going to make a big animal movie, that big animal is going to be expensive. Therefore, it means you need to have a blockbuster to justify the expense. Therefore, that means it needs to come out in summer. And you're not usually like hunting for an Oscar. The Meg was not was not hoping for an Oscar nope. nod. Nope. So nope. no need, no need, no worries coming out in the summer. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Just it's, it's it's when the fun happens. It is when the and fun by the happens. fun I mean, I mean, I'd like to say, well, we're marrying. It's it's not a spoiler, I know, but we're talking about Kunk Skull Island, and I'd like to say, I came out really pro this adaptation and all the ways it subverts the originals. I don't know about you. Yeah, pro absolutely. So I you know I think it's fitting that we're starting with the most classic big animal that we can. Um, I did a little bit of research. It's hard with early film because like, when did stuff come out? It's possible. It's very possible that there were silent movies about big animals that I could not find. But I think that this is by far the most like when we think about big animal movies, this is the first big animal. Yeah, it's 1933. That's pretty good. Mm -hmm. That's pretty good. Um, And your claymation uh, 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 giant ape. Yeah. Well, yeah. Claymation and made out of rabbit fur, I think, initially. Like, he's like a little, he's like a little toy. They move around. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, like, big, big hands. Were you excited to see Kong Skung Island when it came out two years ago? You know, I was. I'm not going to lie. I, uh, that was while I was still in grad school. And one of the few pleasures in life was that on Fridays, a couple of my friends 
would go and see a movie and smuggle in some cans of booze. And uh, this was one of those such flicks. And I don't think I appreciated the nuance of it uh, quite as much as I did watching it in a much more researched and focused way as I did for this podcast. Um, But I, I did find it entertaining, you know, and enjoyable. But maybe I thought it was a little sillier than I think it is now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'll give a quick plot overview for those who have not seen it or who need a little refresher. Um, so this is a update of King Kong taking place right after the end of the Vietnam War. Uh, the U.S. government organization Monarch plans to search for primeval creatures on a recently discovered Skull Island, which lies somewhere between in the sea between um, Vietnam and Indonesia. Um, so this group assembles um, an army squadron, uh, a mysterious British tracker, and a anti-war photojournalist, all of who are looking for one last conflict slash job slash story before they head home. Um, but what they end up finding is a lot larger than just a big ape, is my synopsis of that story. But of course, that this classic story, um, I think it may make sense to talk about classic Kong versus newfangled Kong. Um, <laughs> so let's get into classic Kong a little bit. So basically, the, the most basic version of the King Kong story is um, a, a group of white men. They can be researchers. They can be filmmakers. They can be really anything. Um, yeah, doesn't matter. White men with power, you know. Yeah, yeah. Decide to come to a island skull island which is in a mysterious location it kind of changes depending on who we have conflict with at the moment and um for whatever reason they bring along a beautiful blonde woman who's usually a movie star she's a little starlet Mm -hmm. and when they show up the native people are busying themselves getting ready to sacrifice one of their young women woman to their god and who's this massive ape named kong but when mm-hmm. they see the starlet, they're like, oh, heck yeah, she's way better than our other our women because she's white. And then they kidnap mm-hmm. her. Mm-hmm. And when Kong sees this woman, he gets like big, fat, apey heart eyes in his pupils. And he whisks her off into the jungle um, to start their new life together, mm-hmm. which does not go well because the nope. white men eventually find him <laughs> and take the starlet back. And then, just for good measure, conk him on the head and shove him in a boat bound for New York City. Yeah, wrap him up in chains, take him to be the eighth wonder of the world. Yes, yes. And if you, at this moment, are feeling uncomfortable with the idea of white men chaining up um, a black being and putting them in the hull of a boat, you're not alone. And then, yep. <laughs> for the yep. free world, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but don't worry, Kong does break free of his chains. Um, but unfortunately, this big old dope decides that what he wants to do is he wants to grab his lady love and rekindle his courtship in this new steel jungle by climbing the biggest art deco tree he can find, the Empire State uh-huh. Building. Yep. And then eventually he is shot down and super killed um and the woman is is not killed magically and everything is set to rights again so that's the basic plot line of king kong i think it like the most nuts and boltsy way we can get around this is uh there's there's a lot going on with the king kong story i think the most nuts and boltsy thing we can say is that king kong represents 
man's wish to tame the wild and ultimately having to kill it because it can't be tamed, but also man must be victorious. Yep. And that's why what happens happens. Yeah, it's also like colonization. It's also the black other. It's also... Yeah. Um, yeah, damsel in distress, you know, all these really fun ingredients that make up, uh, you know, some really feminist media. Am I right, Mary? Am yeah. I right? Well, yeah. what I think, I mean, like, and we, I'm we're prepared to fully get in the weeds. I have tons of notes about this. But I think Good. what's really interesting about the King Kong story is that it is about it is about the folly of man to think that we can control something so much larger than ourselves. Yeah. Which I which I agree with. Like that is like that's an important thing. Like it's important to realize how big the world is and it helps it helps show how small we are relatively speaking and you know kind yeah, of like our- knocks us down a peg or two. You know, embracing our own uh, insignificance in the greater schemes of the universe, I think, is really healthy. I know it makes some people depressed. I think that especially megalomaniacs uh, could benefit from understanding that they're just one tiny piece in a much larger thing. You know, Uh, so that's always that's always good. I like that. I embrace that. Uh, It's the execution generally, though, that um, well. Of, of this particular story. This story gives it a weird twist <laughs> because yeah. generally you would expect that kind of story would lead to something where it's like, that's why we have to live in harmony. And then we all join hands with the whales and yep. um, the manatees and like sway back and forth and believe in Mother Earth and all that good stuff. Like that is kind of where you think the story should go, but it's not. Instead, yeah. what happens is you have Kong ascending a testament to man's architectural and fiscal power, and then the military gunning him down in a plane. And it's sort of like... Air support comes in, takes down the beast. Yeah. Man, it's sort of like natural world and civilized world of man cannot coexist ever in any way. One must always win. There is no, like, back and forth. And because it's our story, it must be man who wins <laughs> because we the victors write history, right? So yeah. that's what we're doing there. Um, so I think that that's like that's sort of like the the bedrock of what we're talking about. But what's really interesting, uh, and that's all interesting, and we're going to get into that further because I think that uh, Skull, Island, Skull Island does a really great job of um, dismantling that. Um, yeah. But I also think it's really interesting. So the there is always a woman in a King Kong story, and she's always a white woman and she's always blonde, pretty much. I think that that's so. I don't yeah. I, I don't really remember what Peter Jackson did, but she's definitely white. Um, oh, she's definitely blonde in Peter Jackson's. I don't remember the 77 one. So, you know, our she's, she's Jessica Lang in that. So she's definitely blonde then as well. So yeah. we have these pervasive blondes. Um and it's just it's just like kind of a wait, sorry, I'm like lost in my notes because I have like so many things like wah, wah, wah. So I, I think that the woman is there to play on patriarchal and pro- probably doesn't even seem like a strong enough word for it. Definitely racist ones about exactly yep. who owns women. The Yeah. And white women the white specifically. Woman. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, keep your it feeds into that fear of uh of a black man touching or really looking at a white woman. Um yeah, it's all really gross. Yeah. 
I mean, is my nuanced take. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and it's also like men, white men become the arbiters of who is civilized enough to live. Yeah. Um, and then who are all too wild and who must die. And then they alone and, and because the civilized man are the only ones who have the ability to to have a white woman, even though white women exist explicitly to titillate enemy forces so that yeah. those so those enemy forces can be killed and the damsel can be reclaimed by the white man. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, she's basically a damsel in distress. She's her whole purpose is to give this knight a reason to become a hero, quote unquote. 100% that's all that she is. She's basically a prop. It's really interesting that you mentioned civilized, and I know we'll get into this more, but that's what's so fun about this new narrative is, you know, by being dropped in Apocalypse Now and um, to a lesser extent Heart of Darkness, like, it takes on that theme, like, head on instead of, like, shying away from it, and I thought that was really cool. Again, I really want to take. Ooh, I mean, I'm really excited to get to that point because I actually think it's the opposite. I think it's more Heart of Darkness than it is Apocalypse Now, but we will get into it in a bit. Um, woohoo! Woohoo! Oh! Clashing monster <laughs> narratives. Um, yeah. Literally. <laughs> um, but what is also kind of interesting about the King Kong narrative is that I think we're always supposed to feel sorry for King Kong. Like, he's a pitiable creature. Yep. In all these stories. And I think it's supposed to... And, and you have this, like... The weird thing is, classically, the last line of both the 1933, I believe the one in the 70s, and the Peter Jackson one, is after this, like... After this ape is laying, bleeding on the ground, um, one of the white men says, Oh, no, it wasn't the airplanes. It was beauty killed the beast. Yeah. And... In that Ugh. in that moment, you're supposed to, I think, believe that it's that he's a tragic, pitiable, like sad, um, savage kind of character. Yep. Because yep. apart from the 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 idea that, like, of course, a human sized woman could never be romantically attached to a hundred foot ape. Oh like, my god! Right? <laughs> like it's Looks just like... it's just <laughs> so wild. So like these this little. This little nugget and symbol of like of the privileges of the civilized world is so tantalizing to this mm-hmm. creature. Shouldn't we really feel sorry for it that it just it simply cannot have it? It simply yep. cannot. And yep. to act like that. Well, and also it almost makes the woman the villain in that way. Like yes. the siren, the temptress, like who yes. is responsible then for your, like this downfall and destruction. Yes, exactly. Totally. And also, but also like of, of course they want it because we have it because we are the white people and we have the white woman, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like it's a yeah. there's a lot of there's a lot of things at, at play there. So that's the past. What's the what's the present or the the more recent past? Um, we still have a blonde in the story. Um, blonde woman in the story. Is blonde. She blonde. I would call her a blonde. She's like a, she's like a scotch and soda blonde. Yeah. All right. All it's right. Like golden haired. Um, yeah, no, no, no. I, yeah. I was genuinely wondering, like, what would we call her that? You know, yeah, fair. she's not a platinum, though. No. More natural, no. which makes sense. If she was a platinum blonde, that would be crazy. <laughs> like, no, for sure. You're like, she's... This, the whole point is she's supposed to be more naturalistic in general. So yes. having more natural hair yeah. works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so d- how do we think that, um, that uh, Brie Larson's character of Mason Weaver 
successfully subverts these damsel in distress roots we have from the King Kong story. Well, so first, I I feel like it's worth mentioning, and I hope that this doesn't feel like I'm taking us off track. Um, the tropes that this movie uh, clearly recognizes and then subverts, like that are in the original Kong movies. So we have um, Kong being in a firefight with uh, planes, but that happens in the very beginning. It's the impetus, not like the not the ending. Mm. Um, yeah, like a switcher in- switcheroo of classic scenes. Yeah. Yes, right. We've got uh, Kong like in chains, but it's when he's fighting the kaiju at the very end, the skull crawler, uh, and he's able to break out of them himself to save other people. We've got Kong picking up a woman, but it's to rescue her um, after she after he inadvertently caused her to like be knocked off a rock and fall into the ocean, like. There are all these like small scenes that you get nodded to without it being um, like he still grabs a girl. He's still in chains. He's still fighting with the helicopters. He still pounds his chest at the very end. But, you know, he, you're you're saved by the monster instead of kidnapped by it. You know, uh, it's it's just a really interesting way of still holding on to all those elements without falling into the same traps, which I, I found to be quite fascinating and i thought well well done in that way uh but mason in particular uh is a woman we're presented to as a woman of agency she's here of her own accord she's here as a photographer who is seeking out truths has been uh in the shit so to speak during the vietnam war and helping turn the tide of a public opinion towards like the need to not be at war with vietnam um, yeah, she's like an embedded, she's an embedded photojournalist with a platoon that's in an active yep. combat zone. Or she was. Now it's over. Now her job, yeah. her job is dried up. So she's looking for her next story. So she chooses to go and she knows that there's something fishy about this one. Yeah, it's, um, it's why she chooses to go. She says, you know, yeah. if five of your sources tell you the exact same thing, you know it's a lie. And fair. Yeah, people don't just use word for word the exact same language, you know. So a woman of agency who's choosing to be in this space, who um, is doing, who's actually having an impact on real world events in uh, what I would consider to be a positive way. I think we can agree. Vietnam mistake. Uh, you know, um, I don't think that's controversial. I don't know. Maybe it is. Whatever. I mean, anyway. I guess it depends on how you mean it, but like. I mean, yes, definitely messy, hard to handle, culturally shattering war. Yes. I like that, uh, you know, they could have obviously, if they wanted to just subvert it and they were like, we don't need a damsel in distress, they could have easily cast a man to do this role. Easily. But they didn't, which I appreciate. Um, Otherwise, we wouldn't be talking about it for this podcast. No, not at all. Because there wouldn't be like a woman in it with more than three lines. So, you know. I don't know. I feel like I read that too, and I was like, I feel like they're doing um, Shan a little dirty in that. She's the researcher um, who's the only other woman on this crew. I'm like, she's got kind of a bigger deal than than what sure. when you read when you read feminist crit- criticism of this movie uh, makes it seem. But definitely without Mason, I think maybe because it's just not also a very like the dialogue is not the thing that drives this yeah, movie. No, no. Like so, it's also like not a super fair assessment. Has yeah. more dialogue than, say, episode three of Game of Thrones. <laughs> I got it in there. That Game of Thrones reference. Anyway. Episode um, three of, like, season one? 
No, of uh, of the final season. Um, oh, okay. You can okay. fit all of the dialogue on like one one sheet of paper. I'm. Positive. What about all the anyway. war? What about war, all the warish screaming and chopping sounds? What about the splatter sounds? I mean, I'm sure that those would take up more than a page, but that's not dialogue. There and you go. So it's the same. It's the same test as I'm holding Kong Skull Island too, which has more dialogue than that. But like the bottom line yeah. is, it's, it's not really fair it's to a- be like. How many lines of dialogue does this person have when, like... It's a war film. Yeah, that's yeah. not... Usually they're not that's known not the for their... Like, there's not a lot of soliloquies <laughs> They're sweeping going monologues. Yeah, yeah no. <laughs> um, but, so, I, you know, this is a story mostly full of men uh, mm-hmm. and Mason. But I like that they make it really clear early on that she has cred um, by talking about yeah. the fact that she's been in active combat. She's not been shooting... A gun. She's been shooting her camera, but like there still is sort of a a implicit respect that they pay her, and no one makes too big of a deal out of the fact that she's a woman. It's it's mentioned yeah. once, mostly because she has a um, a kind of gender neutral name, and so people are surprised she's a woman. But it's only mentioned once. Like it's not an ongoing gag. Like Mason's doing this, and she's a woman. Oh wow! Which I really appreciate. A lot. Yeah, no. It's just like a thing that like happens for a second and then we all move on. Yeah. Because yeah. she has an, I think partly because she has an air of competence and it's, it makes it even more feminist that like people aren't like tripping over themselves to talk about her uh, gender. Yeah. Um, it doesn't feel tokened. Herself included. She's also, I would say, sort of the empathetic figure in this story. Um, her role throughout is to observe the way the world the way it truly is rather than to fit a narrative of a of you know like american exceptionalism or any other particular agenda um yeah she's literally the audience avatar uh before this she's been the literal eyes of, of the american public uh, in vietnam so like by being guided by her camera she fulfills this role as like an outsider uh watching and someone who you would like to project yourself onto. Um, we'll get more into like, yeah. is she too strong later? But you know, she's an appealing avatar as well. Well, and I almost saw her even. I don't know if I related to her so much or thought she was my eyes. I felt like she was like, she was like, um, you know, those like bo- those like uh, seek and find kind of like books when you're a kid, like activity books, and then you put like yeah, a red I spy. Yeah, like you put like a red gel over a picture, and suddenly you can see like all of the all of the hidden images that previously were Mm -hmm. drawn with blue ink so you didn't see them and everything else is in red ink. Um, I feel like she's almost like that. So whereas I watch this movie and we meet sort of like the checked out soldier who's like clearly, clearly like not ready to go home. (laughs) Like he's just not ready to go. Um, And we see him and I'm like, oh, he's I'm like, oh, he's going to die in the third act. All right. Well, don't get too attached. But then you have this like nice little (laughs) moment. I mean, literally, that is what I thought. I was like, yeah, sure. Like, I know how these stories go. We didn't lose. The war wasn't lost. It was abandoned. Like that guy's not sticking around. Yeah, exactly. So he um, and I actually really like I like his character. He's an important he's an important part of the story. But um, but like, right, like that would be my immediate thing. I'm like, oh, mm, he's staying here. He's not coming back from the jungle. And then, um, but then you have a nice little moment with on the boat where she's taking pictures and he's like there smiling and kind of joking around and goofing around with the guys um, in their, in their unit. And it kind of forces you to see everyone more, see their humanity, 
no, even if you were yeah. prepared to gloss it over. And she kind of does. So I almost feel like she's she's better than an audience view. She doesn't come at this tale knowing how the story will end, which is yeah. which is sort of a rare a rare thing I think in this kind of story, which is basically just a bunch of archetypes thrown together and shook up, right? Like sure. yeah. we know how a King Kong story is supposed to go. We know how a Vietnam War film is supposed to go. We know what a jungle movie is supposed to look like. You know what I mean? Like we we could we yeah. you, could, you could write the skeleton of this movie out without even thinking about it. But she kind yeah. of is like um she's like a little stick in the spoke that makes you be like, oh, wait, no, this movie might end differently than I think it's going to. And I like that. Yeah, me too. Uh, me too. I yeah, I really I, I like that character in in general. Um, I do like all of the moments that you touched on earlier where she's subverting her typical roles. You have lots of moments that normal that are visual callbacks to what would have happened for to this character in a King Kong movie where like she's laying in the ha- in his, the palm of his enormous hand, but this time he's not yeah. like kidnapping her. He's pulling her out of some water he knocked her into. Or yeah. um, he's chained up and she's watching, but this time she's not a member of an audience. This time she's, she's firing. She's firing a flare gun into a skull crawler's skull. Like it's mm-hmm. there's there's a lot of nice there's a lot of nice visual callbacks that um, I think it's sort of may I don't know maybe some people think it's cheesy, but you definitely can tell the director's like, no, look, this is intentional. I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. I'm making yeah. you see that this it doesn't have to be this way. It can be this well, way. It's it's one of those things where like we kind of talked about this before and I mentioned that like we talked about this on our Captain Marvel podcast plug about uh the song choice. Uh I'm just a girl and I was like, you know, some people say it's pandering and you said if it's pandering, give me two more helpings, please. And that's how <laughs> yeah. I felt about this movie. If this is pandering, more. Just give me more. I'm okay with it. Like, whatever. I um, also, and it's also really funny, when you watch this, you're like, it's crazy that there she's a romantic, like, that the, the female character, the woman character in other Kong films is a romantic interest, of romantic interest to him. Like when you yeah. watch, like it doesn't. It also doesn't have to be that way. I think. I think that like it never had to be that way. No. Yeah. Like I think that ultimately, what you see here is that Kong and Mason have sort of a mutual respect for each other. Yeah. That means that they'll help each other out in in tight moments. It doesn't. There is no. There's no need for him a to be in love with her. Yeah. Yeah. There's absolutely like, none. Still. Yeah. Yeah. No. Now, it's. It's also. It's interesting because I also traced every interaction that they had. Like, I went back and, like, just scrolled through it just to, like, you know, find each moment. And, like, the first moment is when she sees Kong, when she's, like, in the plane. Um, Then she uh, sees Kong when she's trying to, like, uh, one of these giant water buffalo type, you know, preacher, uh, primordial creatures sort of thing. Uh is stuck underneath a, a fallen helicopter and she's trying to like lift it. And then Kong comes over and like lifts it and sees that that's what she was trying to do and doesn't like crush her and just walks away. The next time she sees him, he walks up to her and she like touches his face. And then uh, the third time, like the fourth time, I guess, technically, but like those are the times that they actually interacted. The third time they interact is when she shoots a flare gun into a skull crusher's head because she's like, no, like he's, 
actually here to protect everyone and I'm choosing a side and I liked it. I liked that like you had these different touch points, but none of them had to be gross or weird, you know? They also were like fragmented. They could be separated from each other and the narrative still holds, which I don't think you can yep. say for a lot of other um, King Kong stories. Like without, Agreed. if without, like Mason could be in this, you could remove, it'd be weird. You could remove King Kong entirely from the story and Mason still could be in the story. You could remove her entirely from the story and King Kong would still be in the story. I don't think that yeah. that's true of other iterations. No, for sure. Not at all. Yeah. And you're right. It would be weird, but like, you'd have to call it, it could like, happen. You'd have to call it like Dinosaur <laughs> Island or something if you're removing yeah. King, King Kong. But you Skull could. Crawler Island. Yeah. You could have a story like this where people go to to this like mysterious island and there's a bunch of big animals and they're interacting with them. Like you don't sure. have to have Mason and and, and King Kong be in love with each other or even have a relationship to make the story make sense. Nope. And um, and it, it I loved that this had some like Jurassic Park feels like that first time that like well many times you get many moments where it's like we think we're looking at one thing like a tree covered in leaves and then it's like a bunch of like pterodactyl looking things flying away or the water moves and there's this giant water buffalo that comes and looks at us you know it was really it's very it's very cool. So when this movie came out, obviously, uh, people wanted to talk about the feminist aspect of it because it's pretty it's it's pretty blatant. Um, and mm-hmm. I was a little bit surprised. There was a lot of blowback about it. Um, yeah. And it basically yeah. it basically comes down to why are now that strong female characters are allowed to be in summer blockbusters and in fact are like <laughs> very quite staggeringly popular in summer blockbusters. Yeah, it's wild. Who knew that people didn't mind stories about half of the population? Yeah, Whatever. Who, who who thought that like women would want to see other women in movies? Yep, Shocker. wild shit. Um, but they felt like because these women these women have to be like more than equal to men. They have to like be brave and smart, and they have to be strong and like be able to fight. Um, but they lack human fallibility that makes yep. That makes those the, the forefathers that in, inspired these roles really human and compelling. Sure. Um, and I found two articles that I thought did a nice job of this. So the first one, uh, and it's specifically about Mason, is from Ref- Refinery Twenty Nine, and um, and this is a this is a an excerpt from it. Mason Weaver could have be was written to be an ideal action movie heroine. I, this is the writer saying, I, could practically see the film execs nodding their heads smugly and saying, we've done it. Here's someone so brave, so empathetic, so tough. No feminist could find fault with her. And then the writer goes on to argue that that's just the problem. She's too perfect. She's too brave. She's too kind. um, And therefore, she isn't relatable or human. So then there's also an article in the New York Times. It's not specifically about Mason, but it came out around this time. And it's about um, specifically about reboots retooled for fem- female leads, for feminist leads. So this is a lot. They, they cite a lot of like Ghostbusters, that kind of thing at that time. Yeah. And so they say um, gender swapping satisfies a couple of of the moment uh, entertainment industry imperatives. It allows Hollywood to reanimate lucrative old properties um, Mm -hmm. while recasting them with diverse casts and woke politics. That results in a boom 
in for in comedic parts for women. They talked a lot about comedy in this article. Yeah. But they also come with baggage. These reboots require women to relive men's stories instead of fashioning their own. They subtly ex- uh, expect to fix... Uh, they're subtly expected to fix these old films to neutralize their sexism and infuse them with feminism to rebuild them into good movies with good politics too they do everything that men do except backward and with ideals i love that line and then this is a little bit later on um these feminist protagonists must be admirable no such requirement was placed on uh, the male characters of the past who gained admiration from their audience through their thorough commitment to offending for women, the, dem- the demand often manifests itself as typical fem- feminine behavior, acting nice and looking it. So, mm-hmm. so uh, just spoiler alert, I thought the New York Times article was much better than the Refinery29 article. Yeah, I thought the Refinery29 article like kind of just rolled my eyes a lot. Um, yeah, so... Not saying that there's nothing valid there, just saying, like, yeah, no. I- yeah, so, I mean, I think re- Refinery29... She asserts in that article that the men are given more humanity in this story. And I disagree with that just like across the board. I'm like, no. Yep. Everybody in this story is an archetype. The one we know the most about is, I would say, like probably the sneaky lead of the story, but like presents initially as comic relief. And that's John C. Riley's Marlowe. Yeah, but, but everybody else, like we get like little little touches of who they are as people, but that's not what the story is about, and mm-hmm. it doesn't actually matter. So when she talks about how like the men are allowed to be scared, or the men are allowed, and and but Mason's never scared. I disagree with that strongly. I feel like we have lots of moments when they're going through that thunderstorm. Um, to to like get through the clouds that hurricane to get into the island, everyone looks pretty scared. The only person yeah. who doesn't look scared is Samuel L. Jackson's character, who, like, basically is courting death this entire time. Yeah, no, that's kind of why he's here. So he doesn't want to go home. He's ready to die. Yeah. Like, well, or he has a, he has a bone to pick. He has an axe to grind. Sure. About yeah. about the war. So but like everybody else is scared, including Madison. So like I don't Mason. So I don't really care. Like, I, I think yeah, that no, that's I, not a I good argument. I agree 100 percent. Like later on when like they're like. They're all looking for uh, for a fallen comrade and get, like, surrounded by skull crawlers. Uh, she looks terrified, too. Everyone's terrified. I think that the Refinery29 article is sort of... You could assert all of these things, and they could be true. It's just unfortunate that none of those things are true about this particular movie. Like, Yeah, in, agreed. This is a genre piece, and the genre piece that it is is a Vietnam War film. And in mm-hmm. those movies, we don't, the characters are, like, loosely drawn. Like, you've got, you know, you've got, like, the baby face guy who talks about his mom all the time. And then you mm-hmm. have, like, the guy who's, like, a little bit too violent. And then you have the guy who you can tell is about to snap. And then you have some cipher who's supposed to be you who's just like, I'm just trying to get through this alive. And we have all yep. of those characters here, and that's fine. And we don't need to really know more about them than that, you know? Yeah, the the nuance and the messiness of the movie is left to what war means to humankind. What kind of wars do we take with us as we go through life and what wars do we inflict on other places and what do those stand for in humanity? And we that's and that is like like the war is the rich nuanced character and then all the people are just supporting it to tell 
sort of like a morality to to put to pose a moral on how we should feel about yeah. the war. So like, yeah, I don't if if Mason was like, well, I'm this way because I grew up on a farm and blah, 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 blah. And like had like a huge backstory. It, it, it would also be fine, but it would just be strange and out of place in the story. Yep. I do. I do really like that the New York Times article pointed out that um, there's this sort of uh, correcting politics of older films being driven by male directors who who really flub it up. Not necessarily in that it's not accepted. Like I was so excited for like women Ghostbusters, and and I didn't think it was a bad yeah, movie. Me too. I didn't think it was a bad no. movie, but like the script was not that great, and like you see that yep. a lot, like. You know, Ocean's Eight, not that great. Yeah, the pacing was off in that movie. Yeah, like, and I it's... wanted so much enjoy, and there, I almost fell asleep. And that's not a problem I have. Yeah, and so it's just like it's a problem that they're given kind of these sloppy scripts, and then mm-hmm. they cast leading ladies that people love, so people are gonna go see these movies, right? So it's like, even if even if they're not that good. And then these directors are allowed to kind of give themselves a big old feminist pat on the back while effectively uh-huh. just raking in a money grab. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yep. Like, yeah. it's not... So they should not get credit for that. Agreed. And this film, if you if you are thinking about it in broad strokes, neatly fits into that mold. It's a male director. It's an old film being remade. And it has mm-hmm. a little bit of a feminist makeover to it. But the difference is, I think it's actually very good. <laughs> And that means that it doesn't fall into this trap. I think that you only get there if the end product is bad. I agree. I think that the only thing about this movie that doesn't work for me, and it might just be me and my big old lesbian perspective, is I don't buy the Tom Hiddleston love story. Like, Oh, yeah. And, you know, actually, when I I watched it, I remember it being a bigger deal the first time I watched it because I think I was surprised by it. And then this one, I'm just kind of like, on second second and third viewing, I was just kind of like, meh about it like i was like okay well i guess i guess part of me just felt like why, why bother putting it in there you know because yeah. like it because agreed it's just like kind of like there you know but like it doesn't it wasn't really believable to me they you found know, love in a hopeless me. place kate they found love in a hopeless <laughs> place anyway yeah yeah mm-hmm. but at the same time it doesn't bother me like it's okay yeah uh, and it's also fair. it's a summer blockbuster also, like, well, and, and that's my literal only thing is it's not that, like, it's egregious. It's that I don't buy it. Yeah. Even though, like, I guess, like, you could talk yourself into it. I just, you know, it just, yeah. She was just looking at Tom Hiddleston's ripped back for, like, two hours. And she was like, sure. All right. Sure. Yeah, he's not. <laughs> All right. Whatever. All right. I understand why Tom Hiddleston would be into Brie Larson. Like, I get that, you know. Oh, yeah. But I mean, those are not those characters' names, but, you know, Conrad <laughs> and Weaver. I, I believe I, that Conrad would be attracted to Weaver. I just think Weaver's too cool for him. That's all. I don't know. He's pretty, I mean, he's like an ex-British tracker. He has, like, he has cool cred, I think. I didn't, yeah. he didn't bother me in this movie at all. I liked, I sure. liked both of the characters a lot. And I was kind of like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, two tracked people. All right. <laughs> I also didn't feel like we got a lot of. Se- I think the reason you didn't buy it is it's it's not even really like an important plot point. It just kind of is. No. Like yeah, it, it, you maybe we get like two scenes of it maybe. Yeah, it just it the movie like almost ends like with them in each other's arms. Like that's really why I was like, yeah. Oh, and I get like that was also a tense moment. You would go and like try and take care of someone, but like yeah, you know, I was about to say if just... I just like if I just almost drowned, I would hope that whoever was around me would like pick up my head. 
Um, I, I agree. I yeah. agree. I'm not disagreeing yeah. with that. I'm just saying, like, that was the moment where I'm like, ah, yeah. all right. Do they even you know. smooch in this movie? I don't think so, which honestly is probably uh, a good thing. And maybe I'm just being the biggest. Well, now I'm questioning. Now I'm questioning if there even is a romantic plot line. I think that it's supposed to be there, but I think it's subtextual. You know, it's pretty light. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Because I even honestly, I think is a point for it being even more feminist that like she doesn't have to be, you know. No. 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 Sidekick love entrance. No, she's definitely not. She's definitely not. Yep. so anyway, um, but yeah, like that's again the closest thing to a beef I have with the entire movie. So we just deconstructed how that's not even really a thing, and therefore it's a really, it's a, I really enjoyed this movie. That's all you know. I enjoyed only it. the smallest of beefs. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I fully, I, I, I agree. I just this time around, I was like, did I make up that they're in love? But I might, it might just yeah. been that I was taking furious notes about the female more to not pay attention. So I'm like, did they kiss? I've watched this movie three times now. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, no, me too. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. Um, but I, I guess what I'm saying is, a, a read New York Times, um, that it, it, for me at least, pointed out that this she's not too perfect because rejecting... Because what they're saying is, by by forcing women to to live up to ideals that the, their male counterpoints have done in the past to make these these uh, characters lovable and interesting, you're you're overloading them and you're you're causing them to not seem human. Like it's 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 a hard thing. It's a hard thing to to deal with, and um, it's basically to like sanitize past wrongs, and it's and it's bad for women to have to clean up like the un-PC nature of past works. And I agree with that 100%. Yeah. Um, I do think that this is a worthwhile endeavor because it goes so out of its way to completely reject the damsel in distress role, but the Mason role is still good. And the script is. is still good. And the story that they're telling is immeasurably better because she is the way that she is. Yep. And they and they double down and they're like, and actually, we're not telling a story about male exceptionalism, like exceptionalism of white men. We're actually going to tell the opposite. We're going to tell a story about how unexceptional white people truly are. Yeah. And that that makes it that makes it OK in my mind. I don't think that the I don't think that we I, I'm not worried about her being too perfect. No, me either. Also, I like that we see her cry more than once. Like she doesn't sob, but like. We see, like, tears trickle down her face. Yeah, she's you know? upset. I mean, you would... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a very human emotion. I mean, I, yeah, I, I would, too, obviously. But, like, I think that moments like that, like, contribute to me not worrying about her being too perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. And, and, and everyone's only given, like, a it's such a big movie. Everyone's only given so much screen time. I don't really think that there's, like, a lot of other falli- fallibility on display. Yeah. Actually, from anybody. Like, it's just yep. sort of like they, they they have a certain task that they're brought here to do and then they do it. Yeah. It's an accelerated narrative. It's not like a deep uh, dive into the human. Um, well, I mean, there's human psyche stuff. You know what I mean? Whatever. Yeah. It's well, not a it's... long meditative journey no. around one woman's feelings you know it's 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 an action movie it's a it's not an individual psyche it's a cultural perspectives film i guess yes. so yes it's okay if everyone was sort of as sort of their, their fitting their archetypal role and then and then getting the hell out 
Yeah, because we're abstracting here. Like, yeah. that's the point. So, another reason I wanted to talk about this movie is that I love Vietnam War films. Um, I, I love them so much. And additionally, um, I was uh, lucky to have a really good professor in college who um, taught Vietnam War media when I took all his classes. And also... He taught a Heart of Darkness class, and I had I had this like he was you know kind of like a mentor figure to me, um, and it was the only thing he was teaching the next semester, and I was like, Ugh, Doctor Pratt, I don't want to read the Heart of Darkness, and he was like, Yeah, you do, actually, you do, and I trusted him, and he was right, so I took this class, and I really enjoyed it. So when I was watching this movie, I was like, Oh my god, this is this is uh, Planet of the Apes meets Heart of Darkness. This is awesome. This is a great movie. I'm loving this. Um, wrapped in apocalypse now. It's delightful. So yep. I wanted to I wanted to take a moment to kind of start mapping some of those things out and and talking about how that further enriches what we can take away from this film um, from a feminist perspective. Yeah. So you don't have to scratch very deep to start finding references. Um, Tom Hiddleston's character is named uh, is a Jay Conrad, just like the writer of uh, Heart of Darkness. He's a James, not mm-hmm. a Joseph, but you know can't be too on the nose. And then um, John C. Riley's character shares the same last name um, as the Heart of Darkness protagonist, Marlo, um, mm-hmm. which actually they, they dispense with in Apocalypse Now. Um, none of these people are named any of those things in Apocalypse Now because they're just yeah. mostly focused on um, Kurtz. Kurtz. Yep. Yep. Um, so in this actually when I found when John C. Riley was introduced and he was like, my name's Marlo. I was like, oh, he's secretly the main character of the story. How interesting. How delightful. <laughs> um, yeah. Sneaky MVP. Sneaky MVP. So but to give us a little bit of background on what Heart of Darkness is about. It's a novella um, based on Joseph Conrad's personal experience as a steamboat captain in Africa. Um, set during the Congo Free State during the 19th century. That's basically when um, big Belgian trade companies would come in and they would just like stake out and they would, you know, get elephant tusks and diamonds and gold and really any natural resources that was worth anything from Africa. And they would enslave the people there to do it. Um, And it's a really, really terrible time in history. Um, I would strongly recommend anyone who is at all interested in imperialism um, or just who, you know, would want to dip a toe in with this, read uh, the novel or read the book King Leopold's Ghost, which goes into incredible detail about all this stuff and is very, very good. Um, And you will never feel the same way you do about anything ever again after you read it, but (laughs) especially as a a white um, person of European descent. Yep. So the story Heart of Darkness, though, is about Marlo, who's sort of a uh, Mary Sue for Conrad. He's working <laughs> for a Belgian ivory trading company. He's he's English, though. Um, and so he's stationed in Africa and he has been tasked with traveling up the river to check in on this production hub run by this famously cruel and wonderfully prolific from the standpoint of the Belgians man, um, Kurtz who they think has like kind of lost his lost his juice. They don't really know what's going on with him. Maybe he's sick, maybe he's mad. They just know that suddenly the communication coming from that um that production Sector. point yeah. yeah is not right anymore. So someone needs to go and Marlo's the guy who's going to go. 
And so Marlowe um, has lots of like kind of vignettes where he's confronted by how brutal Europeans are, explo- how brutally the Europeans are exploiting Africa. There's the scene where he's kind of, it's like when he first arrives and he's kind of wandering and he stumbles upon um, a bunch of people working in a diamond mine and they're like they're like basically dying in front of him and he's like oh this is horrifying and he describes it as like falling into an isolated pit of despair like them hurling their bodies into an isolated pit of despair it's very sad um and uh and so kind of you have these so you have these this uh counter narrative where you see the europeans stripping the natural resources from the land and then just like brutal, horrible enslavement of ev- yeah. of all of the people who previously called this place home, right? Yep. And when he finally meets Kurtz, who is a violent, terrible man who's done violent and terrible things to the native people, mm-hmm. he doesn't find this towering pillar of strength. He finds this dying little husk of a man who is so poisoned by the imperialism around him that he's lost he's basically lost his mind like he's not yeah. he's not he's not the altogether and um the last thing he gasps out is the horror the horror so mm-hmm. um kind of the, the the nut of conrad's work is that um the heart marlow and i think conrad also concludes that the heart of darkness is not africa which is what we're kind of led to believe at the beginning but instead yeah. the heart of darkness lives inside each of the europeans who are leveraging racism to artificially draw lines between the civilized world and the wild world and mm-hmm. then use that distinction to justify imperialism and use that distinction to go and say well these people aren't really people anyway so we can we can work them to death and steal all their stuff and that's fine yeah. um it does, I do want to briefly point out, uh, many scholars criticize this text for its simplified version of African people and sure. dismissal of how culturally advanced Africa truly was. Like right in this novel, Conrad basically does not, you, you don't have, I don't think we even have any spe- people who speak who are uh, African people at all. And it kind of dismisses, it's it's sort of like a meets xenophobia coming back around the other way <laughs> where Conrad's like, yeah. no, 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 these people are people and they've got like a good life but like we don't see any of it because we're Europeans so we think that everything we do is the best and we define culture and blah 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 and um, for me I feel like Heart of Darkness was like really important and like blew the doors off like imperialism for me as an undergrad and I suspect Mm -hmm. a lot of other people like me feel the same way but I have to acknowledge that my perspective is an American one and I love what this novel, uh, this novelist uh, Carl Phillips says, which is uh, to, to, to an African reader, the price of Conrad's eloquent denouncement of colonialism uh, of colonialism is a recycling of racist notions of the dark continent and her people. Those of us who are not from Africa may be prepared to pay this price, but for some others, that price might be far too high. And I think that that's that's fair. I like that. Yep. I agree. That's a good read. Yep. Um, but all of this, I think, fits beautifully with this narrative. I would have never in a million years thought to myself that King Kong could be a uh, 
Heart of Darkness story, but once I see it unfold in this way, I'm like, oh, it totally. <laughs> this is great. It really is. This yeah. is so great. Like when you like, who are we to say that man is king? That's not yeah. our job. We don't get to make who that are we distinction. To say who is savage and who is not? Like, why? Why do we get to make those rules? Yeah. Um, yeah. No, it's 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 powerful. Um, and incredibly uh, well done. And in this redi- rendition. Uh, we are the bullies yet again, um, taking on something we have no reason to. Um, and again, it goes back to Samuel Jackson's line. Uh, the war wasn't lost. It was abandoned. It is a little bit maybe problematic that like we've got two white saviors and, um, and a man of color is the kind of the, the one who has become (laughs) mad from war, you know? What yeah. are your thoughts on that? Um, well, the white saviors save themselves. They don't save Kong. Yeah. So I was kind of okay with that. Fair. Um, no, that's fair. I, they, they want to try and save Kong, yeah. but they're not able to. They're not. save themselves. Well, it's not their land. <laughs> like, that's yeah. not their, it's really not their fight. Um, yeah. So that part I really didn't have an issue with. Um, fair. The only thing that I thought was, yeah, I do think it's weird that it's Samuel Jackson and that's nobody else. And I kind of, I honestly kind of wonder if that was a a bid to sanitize this beyond a racial issue. But I feel like if you're talking about the Vietnam War, to yeah, try to take race out of it, to try to untangle it from race is, is stupid. <laughs> like, I don't think you yeah. can do it. North Street, so I think you should do it. So yeah, it's cowardice to try. It's foolhardy and cowardice. Yeah. So, but I don't know if that's like what they were what they were saying. I will say, I will say that if you're gonna have if you're gonna have like a like a a Marlon Brandoian Kurtz figure, Samuel Jackson's a pretty good choice. Oh, for sure. But he's certainly Love Sam Jackson. Yeah, but he's certainly not the only choice. So I I do think that that casting is a little suspect. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah, but I yeah. think I th- he does an he does an excellent job, and he's captivating. Oh, well. he's like the, yeah. he's so intense. But the like, optics that's, aren't fun. Yeah, that's what you need. You need the in- the intensity. Um, yep. And I almost wonder when I watched it, and I was seeing him, I was like, well, maybe this is like a statement about like how how the the thus the us and the them kind of drop away in this environment, and we're supposed to see that like he's like ordering around this like rainbow of humanity in his platoon. But I, but I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think th- there was nothing. Everything else, they kind of have like a little punctuation mark on, you know. Yeah. And there was no punctuation mark there, so I'm not really sure what they're trying to say there. Um, no, me either. And it's and he kind of dies anticlimactically. Like maybe, yeah. maybe you disagree, but no, 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 um, he does. I mean, that's and that's Kurtz does too. Like that totally makes yeah. sense. No, of course, of course. Uh, yeah. So. I, I thought that that was, that, yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up. That is a weird, that's a weird aspect of the story. Yeah. Um, but, you know, just as Apocalypse Now um, has its own Heart of Darkness backbone, um, I like that they did, I, I think that this movie was far more successful because they placed it in the Vietnam War, um, not in 19th yeah. century Belgian-occupied uh, Africa. <laughs> well, and 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 they they didn't just uh, appropriate uh, parts of 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 the Vietnamese culture. Like they they tried to actually 
say something. Um, right. They they kind of dissected actually like the politics of the Vietnam War and mm-hmm. the politic like and 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 the racism sort of against the Vietnamese people and instead told an entirely original story but using the same shorthand um yeah that that the Vietnam War films do so like you've got this sort of that mix that that intoxicating mixture of patriotism and senseless destruction is so yeah. inherent in Vietnam War films um and they use well, that and, language yeah and a crew of people who like could have just been home at this point you mm-hmm. know like people who have just like are being pulled into this destructive force uh in a senseless way yeah um but i loved i loved all the visual the visual calls to that world like hell you yeah get all the helicopters flying low the rents to red skies you have all these men the music's well selected oh the the sound i love the sound in this yeah. film like how many times yeah. the sound drops entirely out that's very vietnam war yep. film where like like a yep. guy like there there's um there's like heavy gunfire and then your main character can't hear anymore and then there, you've got this disorient basically vietnam war films are all about like people being disoriented and not mm-hmm. really knowing what they are to do and that's the point because war is a disorienting scary thing and it's driven by it's driven by this need to destruct masks by this the story of patriotism and that's why it's Mm -hmm. it's so intoxicating and scary and sad to watch these kind of films um agreed but i loved all the scenes i mean like when as soon as they come into the jungle you're like oh yeah so they're just gonna like nate palm it like it's these men dwarfed by like yeah life that they can't really control so they need to like blast it full of fire um yeah for quote scientific purposes which we find out later john goodman like was trying to smoke out kong ultimately i think that the story is effective and it makes sense in an apocalypse now heart of darknessy vietnam war film way because it's trying to open our eyes to our distorted way of thinking about our own exceptionalism and the devastation that that belief in our exceptionalism causes Right. And I, I, so I liked, I thought this was a genre film that like went above and beyond. It's not just a genre film as like a, a clever nod with a couple of little, little comments here and there. I think it's, it, it really, it took this story and reimagined it in a genre in a way that makes it way better than any of the originals. Yeah. Because it, because it does that twist that it's not, that it's, that it doesn't do the twist that's bad. It says like, no, King Kong deserves to exist. You exert. You probably deserve to exist. Why are you dropping bombs on him? <laughs> like, stop that. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you made you you made some choices like dropping bombs that elicited a reaction because creatures of sentience, well, creatures in general, strive for survival. And just because you're not a part of just because you don't understand this ecosystem doesn't mean it's not important and functioning and uh, and should be left alone, you know? Absolutely. And I loved the line about, um, you, this is, like uh, Marlo says, this, this is his house. You don't drop bombs on someone's house unless you're picking a fight. Um, yeah. I think to, to your point, this is, we as Americans are very privileged to be able to think about war as being something very far away. 
right? Yes. Like, none of us remember what it's like to have conflict on our own soil. Not really, right? No, like, no, like not Pearl at all. Harbor That's... and 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 nine eleven are like the two, the two ones right, right there. But we didn't, but we haven't had armies march across our lands. No, like, no, no, yeah, no. There hasn't been an invasion. Um, so I liked uh, I liked this. We invade inv- all sorts of places, though. Yeah, so I like this sort of like inversion where when they're dropping the bombs, you know it's wrong. You get that like chilling scene where you yeah. see him in, in the aviators, like the the explosions and like the look of glee on that man's face to to yeah. be destroying this world that he hasn't even like set foot on yet. <laughs> like, so yeah. there's nothing about first thing you do, you instantly start destroying it. Yep. Um, but I, I liked, I think it was important to to have that, like, inversion where you're like, oh, right, we are the people that invade places. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, maybe we just do deserve to get our, our, our ass handed to us a couple of times. Like, that's, yeah. I agree. 100%. Uh, what did you make of the skull crawlers? This is another thing that I think people either love or they hate. I mean, I I really loved them as a as a creation because I really loved, um, you know, you you mentioned how in original Kong films, like Kong is like you know, the god of like the indigenous peoples or whatever. Mm-hmm. I loved the idea that like, yeah, you worship him because there are monsters that will literally kill everyone if he wasn't here to protect you. You know, it's not just like, oh, big creature. You know, it's like. Oh, literal king of the jungle who protects us all the time. Like, I liked that a lot. Personally. Yeah, I think a lot of people. Also, I liked that big monster fight at the end. Yeah, I it was oh, good. That was great. It was great. It was entertaining like, as hell. Yeah, absolutely. I liked them too. A lot of people were like, "Well, why don't you just have them fight dinosaurs? That's what he did in the original. What's wrong with dinosaurs?" Cause mostly because they did not like the way the skull crawlers design is, and I kind of agree with them. I don't love that like weird big tail they have. Like they're sure. they're kind of like a weird tripod monster, and I'm like, just give them f- two back feet. Like it's fine. They don't have to be super yeah. weird. But I do yeah. love the way that their faces look, and they're like their front half. I I'm very into as a yeah. Their as front a half is design. horrifying. Yeah, it's yeah. very scary when you see that like dumb little like um like newt tail. Then they stop being <laughs> scary to me. <laughs> uh, but uh, but yeah. So bravo on the first. I can't half. necessarily agree with that, but I understand it. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. they're plenty scary to me with their dumb newt tails <laughs> they're oh they are too they're the opposite of a butt face i'm like their face great their butt mm. uh, <laughs> any hoozle um but i did like them also so i i thought a lot about them too because i was like well aren't they na- the natural world like aren't isn't it maybe it's okay that they're coming up to like eat Kong and all of his family, although it was so sad when we saw those giant ape skeletons. Um, yeah, like the movie it really was. Definitely does not want us to think that it's okay. So I tried to kind of like unpack that a little bit. Um, and what I ar- where did you come to? What I arrived at was I think that they're supposed to be like physical manifestations of primordial, like super deep reptilian brain death and destruction. And Ooh. where the reason I arrived at that is. Um, there's a line, I think I think Marlo says it too. Man, Marlo gets to say most of the good stuff in this movie. Um, sneaky MVP. Sneaky MVP. Um, he says that our bombs are waking up something. Like, the bombs have woken a bunch of them up, and that's why Kong is mad at us, right? And I was like, ooh, so it's like, 
our technology, our ability to kill things is waking up something big and scary. So I think maybe it's supposed to be like a little bit metaphoric for maybe it's not like maybe literally in Vietnam, we didn't wake up skull crawlers, but we awoke something bad inside of us that meant that we that the, we could commit the My Lai Massacre. Like that that was something that was something that we would be willing to do and think was appropriate because our skull crawlers are crawling out of like the dark, the heart of darkness inside of us. I don't know. That's where I arrived at. No, no, no. I, I like that. that They're not just like everything else that every character is an archetype. They are um, more metaphor than they are a physical manifestation. Yeah. Uh, and they make it all the more interesting that Kong is able to subdue, subdue them. Um, yeah. Well, and he is so, I mean, he's fuzzy. He's cute. He's mammalian. And these things are, their character yeah. design is so weird. Like, they're like, their faces are a skull. You know, like, they're dead already. They're not even really, like, living beings, you know? Um, so I think they go out of their way to try to make it clear that they're not, they're not of the natural world the same way Kong is. Or the muskox, or that big octopus that he kills. So... What do we make of um, Conrad says this? He's talking about um, I actually I really like the scene, too, because like, I feel like in Vietnam War media, there's a, kind of a dialogue with uh, World War Two because it's it's the, the conflict and the, the strain between the two conflicts and how we felt about them and what we thought about the people who came home after them are so yeah. different. And he talks about, like, he talks about his dad throwing him this lighter and then to go off and kill Nazis. And he says, mythic heroes aren't real. What do we make of that as a statement in a world where there are literal, like, mythic creatures of old? <laughs> like King Kong. <laughs> um, That's, you know, that's an interesting point. Uh, The way that it's kind of tackling this duality of, like, there's literal mythology, but the stories that we tell about humans that are bigger, like they're not real. Um, it, I think it hints to the darkness that we were talking about before. The fact that uh, to be human is to be, have weaknesses, darknesses, vulnerabilities that we're not the John Waynes uh, that we like to tell ourselves we are. Mm -hmm. um, particularly in context of Vietnam, uh, you know, having that dialogue accompanying a Vietnam war film where, you know, you just mentioned the Mylar massacre. Like, it, no, lot. You're not. It's not as straightforward as being a hero. Um, mm -hmm. I do love that it's contrasted with literal mythology. Um, <laughs> but, but I think that that's just fun and tongue in cheek. What do you think? Yeah, I think it also might be a little bit like we are not. Like, Kong can run Skull Island because he is of Skull Island. This is a mythic place. Like, even the people who inhabit it, who like are so beyond. Um, so beyond us uh, socially and culturally speaking that they don't even really have to talk to each other. Uh, mm -hmm. Like, I think that they kind of occupy also sort of a mythic, a mythic plane, but we do not op uh, occupy this mythic plane. And to try to pretend like we do means that we set ourselves up for, um, for conflicts we can't really deal uh, with. Yeah. And abject failure. Yeah. Exactly. Like there just it just isn't. Also, I would like to I would like to go out on a limb and say that the only reason we don't feel about World War Two the way we feel about this is, um, well, partially because of the Nazis 
And uh, partially because we couldn't see pictures of all the people that they raped I, and mutilated and yeah, killed. Yeah, <laughs> I was about to say that. Um, yeah. It's funny because, like, we still use Nazis as ultimate evil. Like, whenever you are filming some, like, you know, Star Wars, the Empire, like, the shots in uh, Force Awakens. Um, Th- are, there's a reason are, Indiana, are Jones, shots. Indiana Jones always yeah. fights Nazis. Yeah, it's like the ultimate because, villain. Because, like, they are, they are the objective evil. Like, we are able to be like, oh, definitely evil trying to exterminate people um we don't want that same lens put uh in any other direction though um but i think that yeah we also didn't have to face those horrors i'm sure horrible things happened then too i don't think that like the men in world war ii were just far superior than all the men in vietnam i say men you understand that most of yeah. them were men. Anyway, it's it's most fair. of them were men. But it's fair. But. So coming up off these mythic heroes aren't real. My last thing is, um, so Conrad also says this. I suppose no man really comes home from war, re- not really. And definitely Heart of Darkness and definitely Apocalypse Now agree with that. Both of those things, yeah. men either die or they come home and they're real, real weird. But this Marlowe is allowed to return to his family in Chicago. Why do you think that is? Oh my is? god, I love it. Oh yeah, I loved I, it. I loved it. I love it. it. I love it. It's like it. what I what I love is that this movie ends kind of the way Apocalypse Now does, like you're on the boat, you know, you're going out mm-hmm. into the darkness or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then we get to see John C. Riley going home, and there's his wife and his kid, and everyone's just like cool. And they're like, you know, feeding him a hot dog and he's watching a game, you know? Like yep. loved it. Just can't even. Uh, why does he get to come home? Um, I don't know. Maybe to, uh, represent the resilience of the human spirit that, uh, even with our darkness, that, um, we're not irredeemable. Yeah. I, I, I think, I think some, I I agree with that at least partially. Um, I thought (laughs) it was, I thought it was because, I thought it was because he didn't really have a heart of darkness, to be honest with you. Because, because like, there's like a and they don't even make a big deal out of this but he talks about his like best friend and that's the guy he was fighting in the beginning right it's yeah, the Japanese yeah, soldier the very first shot of this movie is like he and this guy are trying to kill each other even though they're like stranded on an island in the middle of nowhere so like instantly I was like I mean I kind of feel like I'd be like whoa don't make me kill you we are now fucked yeah but then they see Kong and that is enough to do that like they don't need a a Kate Whitney type story uh they just, <laughs> like they, they like they get that existential dread but you're right like he spent so much time on that island acting peaceably he didn't he didn't become Kurtz he didn't no. write things like exterminate all the brutes you know like mm-hmm. he he peaceably lived with these people when other white people came in and started trying to fuck shit up he was like no listen mm-hmm. Take a step back. There's a whole world here that you are just like ruining, and and then you know he worked peaceably. He he helped try to com- to avert disaster. You know. Yeah, I think that's why. I don't think he has a heart of darkness. I think that his his ability to live alongside his former enemy and become his best friend, and then like and want his to- brother. Yeah. All those wonderful things. And then and also being able to live alongside the native people and like respect them and and understand that like his ways are different, but that their ways are in many ways better. You know, yeah. like I I think that that saves his soul. And I think that's why he gets to go home. It's a I I did feel like it was a little bit fan servicey, but in a way that I enjoyed. (laughs) I didn't care. Oh, for sure. 
I for really sure. wanted him to go back. I like I no, kept I'm... waiting for there for, to be like a gut punch where it'd be like, and she's remarried now. Wah wah. But no. Okay. I know, right? I'm just like part of me was like, I mean, would it just be that easy? But I'm okay with it. It's fine. I love it. It's on C. Riley. Yeah. 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 Always will have a soft spot in my heart. Um forever and always. And this character in particular was lovely. So I really love this movie and I really loved that it was not it's like a bunch of my favorite things all on top of each other, like a big ostentatious ice cream sundae where it's a yeah. Vietnam War film and it's a big animal movie and it's a feminist movie. What did you think? I fucking loved it. I had such a delightful time uh, watching this. I thought it was a lot of fun. I love the big monster movie. I love the it's a period piece. Um, mm-hmm. I know it's a Vietnam War movie, but like, you know, just the trapping of period of, pieces. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's 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 a lot of fun. Um, and I'm glad that uh, that we get to see the other side of it. Um, and I'm glad that Kong is okay. Like, there's several times where I'm like, Hope you know, the die. first time watching it, you're like, yeah. Well, and you know what? I'm so glad he didn't. And I really love that, like, instead of, like, seeing his, like, chest pumping, like, right before he dies, it's his chest pumping as he, like, you know, thumping as he lives. You yeah. Know? He's like, that's it. right. Yeah, that's right. My house. Yep. Um, yep. Yeah, I did too. I, I'm glad that he got to live. I think that that's a, that's like the biggest subversion of what you expect to happen. You Like, even if you don't know that you're expecting him to die, you're expecting him to die. And the fact that he doesn't yep. is um, is a wonderful choice on their part. And I know I that he, they let him live so that he can fight other monsters. And yeah, yeah, more. yeah. But they put all the toys back in the box so that they could continue playing with them. I get yeah, it. But. Yeah, 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 yeah. But at the same time, they, they didn't have to. They could have made it look like he died and then Kim came back. That's always an option. Or it's like, oh, yeah, that happens all the time. Yeah, they're like, oh, he's actually not the last, uh, the last giant gorilla. Yeah, that was his brother. other Kongs. Yeah. That's his brother. Kong, Kong the third. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um... So and I loved um, I love that we that the the filmmakers chose to bring in a brave strong woman. Um, Me too. To be the lens of reason, and I think to deliver the like the line that is like what this movie is about, which is when like base when um, Samuel Jackson is like we're gonna kill everybody, and Hiddleston's like or we're gonna kill Kong, and Hiddleston's like yeah you shouldn't do that, and she's just like stop it. The world is much bigger than this. Yes. That I think is that it's I think such is a like a powerful moment. Yeah, that's like the core and of what down, this like, movie's a about. A gun in her face for like the third time that Samuel Jackson puts a gun in her face in this movie. Um she gets she gets yeah. almost shot a lot. Yeah. yeah she really does. And you yeah. know what? Maybe that's what that person was complaining about about like her being too brave or whatever, but Nah, I mean, if you can do it and survive once, you can do it and survive other times, you know? Like sometimes yeah, you just gotta she was speak like, up. Yeah, she was like, dude, you haven't shot me the first two times, so like, what's like <laughs> yeah. you're going to shoot me what? now? Right. No. Yeah. All oh, right. So good. So next week, we're going to be continuing to celebrate big animal movies um, with a big shark movie. We're going to be watching The Shallows with the beautiful, effervescent Blake Lively. I can't wait. Woohoo! I can't wait either. Super into it. Uh, love giant animal movies. Thank you for listening. Uh, head to Space Bros, head over to Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever platform of your choice to subscribe, rate, and review. 
please consider leaving us a, a lovely positive review. Uh, we would love to hear from you. If it has to be negative, maybe just email it to us. Um, <laughs> our... Maybe do that thing where you write a, be- a mean letter to somebody and then you don't send it, but you do send it. You just send it directly to us as opposed exactly. to posting it. <laughs> exactly. Uh, be sure to visit our website, outrageousmechanisms.com slash space dash bras. And uh, to see our show notes and find other excellent podcasts and see who Mary and I are and just bask in the glory that is this website. And uh, also check out our social media. We got Instagram. We got Twitter. We got Facebook that's not very active, but, you know, we got it. Anyway. (laughs) We've got an unloved child that is Facebook. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Whatever. 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 It's still there. It's there. It's a platform. It's a platform. It's there for you. Yeah. Uh, and now join us as we raise our glasses and give the official toast of space bras in these troubled times. We must remember that even though everyone else might suck, we are awesome. And the galaxy is ours, but it's also a blogs to con. Cheers. Cheers! <laughs> Love that. <laughs> Outrageous.